Father, thank you for gathering us as your people once again. Lord, we trust that you will again be faithful to your promises and that you will speak to us from your word. Lord, comfort those of us who are in need of your comfort. Disrupt those of us who are too comfortable. Also that your name would be made higher in this congregation and would be made greater in the city of Lexington. We love you, Father. Use this time to increase our love. Amen. So Mark told me this morning that I was free to preach on anything, and so I've chosen Genesis 32, this account that has so fascinated me for several years now, and that I believe is very appropriate to your current series on the Lord's Prayer. You see, the Lord's Prayer lays out instructions on how to pray. It gives you the content and the focus of what our prayers are to be comprised of. But the question must be asked, what is the goal of praying? And Jesus himself lays that goal out in the Gospel of Luke after giving the Lord's Prayer. He goes on to explain that if we, in our earthly friendships, or we as earthly parents, if we give people good gifts when we are asked... How much more so will our Heavenly Father do so for us when we ask? But then he concludes by telling us what it is that we will be given. He tells us it's the Holy Spirit. In other words, yes, we are praying all of these individual requests of the Lord's Prayer, but the ultimate goal and the aim of our praying is that we would enjoy an encounter with God himself. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in our, in our text that we read earlier from Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Did you hear that? Paul is praying that you would encounter God by his spirit who dwells within you as he makes the love of Christ big and beautiful to your heart. This is what it means to encounter God. This is the aim, the goal of our praying, to encounter God. Keller describes prayer like this. Prayer is continuing a conversation with God that he has started through his word and grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. That is what we are aiming for in a praying life, to respond to the God who has first initiated that conversation with us, to respond to him and to continue doing so until it becomes an encounter with that God. But what in the world would encountering that God actually look like? And that's why we're turning to Genesis 32, as we look at this encounter that God has with Jacob. So three points to move us through this encounter. The preparation for encountering God, the reality of encountering God, and the result of encountering God. First, let's see how God prepares Jacob to encounter him. Now, if you know Jacob's story, you know that his name is a very good descriptor of who he is. You see, Jacob, that name, it means supplanter. And it's okay if you don't know what that word means. I didn't know what that word meant. But what, what, what it brings to mind is an idea of someone who will do whatever it takes to get ahead. They will outwork, they will outsmart 
They will even resort to cheating and manipulating others in order to get their way. That's what comes to mind with his name, Jacob. And it's very consistent with his story. You see, Jacob, he comes out of the womb, grasping onto his brother's heel, and his entire childhood, he lives in his older twin's shadow. Eventually, he has to skip town, run from his brother and home, because he swindled his brother out of his birthright and tricked his father into giving him the blessing instead of his brother. And he goes on from there to his uncle Laban's house, and he outworks, out-hustles his uncle, and ends up marrying both his daughters and leaving Laban's house with a great majority of Laban's wealth. Jacob is a self-made man. He is somebody who, it would seem, nothing has been given to him. He did not grow up with a silver spoon, but he has out-hustled, he has outworked, he has outsmarted everyone and everything in his path, and he's been very successful. He sounds like the character arc of many movies that we love, rags to riches. Jacob goes to a foreign land and comes back very wealthy and successful. And now he's coming home. That's where our text picks up. Jacob's coming home, and he's just found out that his brother Esau is somewhere in the distance heading his way with a group of some 400 men. And Jacob is freaking out. He's petrified. He's terrified. Thinking, of course, Esau is coming for revenge. Esau is going to destroy me and my family and my wives and my servants. Esau is going to put an end to me tomorrow. But Jacob always has a plan. He's always 10 steps ahead of everybody else. So what does he do? He divides up his livestock, all his possessions into three groups, and he sends them out in waves so that each wave will hit his brother Esau. And with each wave, a servant will say, listen, Esau, all this stuff, it's a gift to you from your brother Jacob. And he's somewhere back there. Wave one, wave two, wave three goes by. What's Jacob trying to do? He's trying to manipulate the situation. He's trying to outsmart, outthink, outwork Esau to lessen his wrath. So he sends out these three waves of gifts, and that's where our text picks up. Night has fallen. Esau and the 400 warriors are somewhere out there in the darkness, and a fateful meeting will follow when the sun rises. And Jacob has no idea whether his plan has worked or not. And so he is terrified. He is freaking out. In a last-ditch effort, he gathers up his family, last servants remaining with him, sends them across the river, trying to preserve their life, maybe I can save them, and he's left alone, away from all his resources, away from his family, away from anything that would bring him comfort, all these things that he's relied upon throughout his life, they've been removed from him. He is alone. And for the very first time in Jacob's recorded life, his self-sufficiency, his strength, his resources, his ability to just make things happen, it has failed. And he is alone, he is weak, he is desperate. God prepares Jacob to encounter him by first stripping everything that Jacob relies on away from him. Everything that Jacob has looked to for strength. God has backed Jacob into a corner that there is no way out of so that he has to come face to face with his radical dependence. And that is what I would like for us to consider this morning. That you will never encounter your God until you have been made desperate. Until you come face to face with the end of yourself and see the truth. 
And the truth is this, nothing about you has fundamentally changed since the cradle. If you've been around babies, you know that they are a picture of dependence. They cannot feed themselves, they cannot change themselves, they cannot even roll from their back to their belly without somebody helping them. A picture of dependence. But as you grow up, we lose acquaintance with this fact. The good gifts that God has given you, your strengths, your work ethic, your charisma, your personality, your resources, even a good church community, good theology, all of these things can serve to insulate you from the fact of your fundamental dependence on God. And then you throw in the constant distraction of our digital age and you are severely cut off from the fact that you were made dependent on God. I lived in Montana for a few months at the end of college trying to live out my dream of being a cowboy. And uh, we would do this hike, the guys that I lived out there with. We would do this hike every week or so called Beehive Basin. And what you would do is you'd walk through the mountains and suddenly you'd enter into this basin, this gigantic snow field with these mountain peaks all around you. And I'd always do this, pe- this hike with other people. But one day I was the only one off work and so I went to do this hike by myself thinking, hey, I'm a cowboy now. I can be out in the wilderness by myself. So I go and I, I do the hike and I make it up into the snow field and I'm a couple hundred yards in, trudging my way through the snow and I see that there's some sort of animal, some sort of shape up in the snow in front of me and there's like a brownish, reddish stain to the snow and I realize, well, my goodness, there's a dead animal up there. And then I hear a howling, which full disclaimer, I think it might've been a beagle looking back on it, but to me, it was wolves. To me, it was wolves. And I started freaking out, freaking out. So I reach into my backpack to grab bear spray that you should always have with you. And I grab a canister and I pull it forward and realize that I did not have bear spray, but I did have peanut butter. And the fundamental absurdity of my condition landed. I was out in the middle of Montana by myself with either wolves or a crazy beagle. And I was alone. I was not a cowboy. I'm a kid from Kentucky who does not know what they are doing in the wilderness of Montana. My fundamental dependence was exposed. Something like that is what has happened to Jacob in our text. His utter dependence has been exposed and he has nothing left to cling to, nothing to hold on to. But that is precisely when he encounters his God. And here's the point. You will never encounter God when you come to him from a posture of self-reliance. You will never encounter God when you are insulated from your dependence by your resources, friends, family, success, or any number of good things that we prop ourselves up with to feel strong, independent, self-sufficient. You will never encounter God when every time adversity comes, you can outthink and outwork everything that comes your way. You will never encounter your God when every time something comes up, you run to distraction. God wants you in a posture of dependence. As one theologian says, God's office is at the end of our rope. God's office is at the end of our rope. Reformed people, do you not think that God has sovereignly orchestrated every moment in Jacob's life to bring him to this place of desperation? Do you not think that God is using every moment and minutia of your life to bring you to the same? 
His office is at the end of your rope, and you are there whether you realize it or not. This is the preparation for encountering God. Now, let's look to the reality of encountering him. What's the substance of this encounter going to look like? So Jacob, he's alone, he's terrified, he's desperate. And this is when God shows up, but in such a strange way. In the form of an unnamed man, God rushes at Jacob and tries to throw him down in the two lock in hours of wrestling. What in the world? This should cause you to, like, it's okay to chuckle at this a little bit. This is strange. Picture it. Imagine you're Jacob. You're at the end of your rope. You're freaking out. It's dark. Maybe you're starting to pray. And you notice over to the side, there's a figure. And you don't know who it is. And so you say, hey, who are you? What's going on? The person doesn't respond, but instead rushes at you, tackles you, throws you to the ground. This is very strange. But it is the first mark of truly encountering your God. He begins intruding into your space and into your life. You see, Jacob had known the truth about God before. He's had visions of God. He's had promises from God. But this is the first time that God actually begins to have his way with Jacob. If you genuinely encounter God, he will not leave you unchanged. He will be no accessory to your life as he had been for Jacob up to this point. He will not be merely a religious system for your comfort, your security, and your happiness. He will have his way with you. He will throw his divine weight around in your life, and it's going to upset some things. That's the first mark of encountering your God. And you know you've encountered him when he begins to have his way, when he begins to have his say about your finances, about your sexuality, about your private life, about your work, about how you spend your time, when God begins to have his way, that is the first mark of knowing that you've encountered him. But the encounter doesn't stop here. God intrudes into Jacob's life, throws him down, and Jacob hangs on and grapples with his God. If you've ever wrestled for more than five minutes, you know that it is exhausting. A former youth pastor here that I had, whose name was Robert Cunningham, I saw once wrestle some senior boys, and after three minutes, we were ready to call the ambulance. We thought he was going to die. <laughs> now imagine you've wrestled with someone for the entire night. Jacob thought he was at the end of his rope, but now his cardiovascular system is about to explode, and his brother's only a few short moments away. And that is when God reveals himself. Again, in such an interesting way. Look at the clues. First clue to who this mystery man is. He touches Jacob's hip, instantly disabling it. The hip is the largest, strongest joint in the human body, something that it takes the force of a high-speed vehicle collision or the force of falling from a couple stories up and landing feet first. That's, that's the kind of force that it takes to dislocate the hip. But here, this unnamed assailant merely touches, just bing, and Jacob's hip is undone, crushed, disabled. Touched is not a great translation there. Something more, like his hip has been smashed. So what does Jacob instantly know? My goodness, this person I've been wrestling with is holding back. Like a young boy wrestling with their father, thinking that they are strong and mighty, and yet the father is holding back so very much. 
Jacob would have instantly known that he was wrestling with someone who was holding back, who was limiting himself. And then God says, let me go for the day has broken. That's the second clue to who this is. Why is it so important that Jacob not see this person in the light of day? Because you look down further and you see Jacob say, I have seen the face of God and have been delivered. Why should you let me go before daybreak? You don't want to see my face. No one can see my face and live. And the reality lands on Jacob. My goodness, this is God himself. The God of my forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. This is Yahweh. A terrifying reality to behold. But Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I know that seeing your face will cause my death, but I'm not letting go. I will not let go. It all hits right here. This is what Jacob's been after for his entire life. And so he grabs hold of God, refusing to let go without his blessing. Rewind the tape on Jacob's life. Back to when he lives with his family. He finds out that his father is about to bless his older brother. And in this culture, the law of the day, just the way that they had to order their society for generations to succeedingly live in a just society, the oldest brother always had to get the inheritance. It's just the way it was. It wasn't favorites, it's just the law. But the way that it was bestowed was the father would call the oldest to him and bless him in some form, establishing him as the new head of the family. And so Jacob hears that his father's about to call his brother in to bless him. And what does he do, if you know the story? He goes out, and he gets some animal skin, and he covers his arms up with it, and he goes in to try to deceive his father so that he will get the blessing. Do you think that Jacob was actually under some delusion that he would end up with the inheritance? No, he knew that this, this disguise wasn't going to work in the long run. He knew that he wasn't going to get the rightful inheritance of Esau. What's he after then? He is desperate for his father's blessing. He is desperate for his father to look at him, say, I approve of you, I delight in you, I love you, you're going to be the one who runs the family. And so he tricks his dad into blessing him, and surprise, surprise, it doesn't work. So he flees, runs off to a foreign land, and that's when he finds Rachel, beautiful woman, Ah, if only I can have her. If only she will look at me. If this beauty will tell me that she loves me and delights in me, then I'll be okay. And again, it fails. It doesn't work. He gets her, but it's a mess. And then the striving and the working to build his wealth, again, he's after a blessing, and it doesn't work. But here, Jacob has hold of God. And if he blesses me, that is enough. Everything that I looked for in my father's blessing, everything that I looked for in the eyes of Rachel, in Laban's money, it is right here. I have been so wrong. It's God himself I've been after. That's the blessing I've been striving for. God, won't you bless me? And that is the second mark of an encounter with God. When you realize that he is the blessing you've been after. You've been searching, you've been praying for blessing in all these other areas of life, in your work to be successful, in your kids to turn out all right, in finding a relationship, in having pains and anxieties and insecurities taken away, in having an impact in the world for God's kingdom. But an encounter with God leads you to say, God, you are the blessing I've been after. An encounter with God leads you to see that his blessing, his approval, 
nothing matters more than this. Nothing matters more than loving him and being loved by him. Nothing matters more than serving him and being served by him. He is what you've been after. And God has to strip everything from Jacob to bring him to this point. All the preparation has led up to this. God, you are all that I am after. Won't you please bless me? And my goodness, the kindness. God blesses him. And a blessing was always verbal. It was always audible. I wish we had the sound bite on this one. I don't know what God says, but God spoke words of blessing over Jacob. He tells him something that he's been after all of his life. I think it must have been something like, Jacob, I love you and I delight in you more than anything in the world. What Jacob has looked for in every other encounter, in every other relationship, in his work, God blesses him here. And Jacob lets go. He hears those words of blessing and he lets go. I can't help but just imagine that he melts, just crumbles to the ground. Exhaustion and striving gives way to hearing his God bless him. How in the world can God do this? How in the world can he allow a sinful, scandalous man like Jacob, someone who is nowhere shown as being admirable, how can he allow him to hold on to him, let alone bless him? Because he holds back in this wrestling match so that he might unleash his full weight class in another great wrestling match of God and man. You see, God would again take on human flesh as the man Jesus of Nazareth, a man from the house and line of Jacob, and there would be a new wrestling match. But in this match, God would hold nothing back. He would not limit himself. The full weight of omnipotent and holy justice would be released on the God-man Jesus Christ. What Jacob did not receive, what God held back from us, was unleashed on Jesus Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Also that Jacob might encounter God and live and receive the words of blessing. Also that you might encounter your God and hear the blessing. I love and delight in you more than anything else in the world. And to have you and to prove that this is true, my blood will be spilt. My son will be crushed for your sin. Do you not see that this is what God says of you in Jesus Christ? This unbelievable truth that God looks at you and says, you are my beloved son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Now I know that you know this is a true statement, but it is a reality to be inhabited, an encounter to be had where truth gives way to doxology. This is why Jesus trains us to begin the Lord's prayer addressing our father. Have you had that? Have you had this? Have you had an encounter with your God? Finally and briefly, the result of encountering God. Verse 31, what happens? Jacob leaves with a limp. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked one time what the mark of someone was who encountered God, and he said they walk with a limp. I love that. I love that. The mark of someone who has encountered their God is they walk with a limp. But what a joyous limp this is. 
It's a limp that though it pains you, though it frustrates you, it limits you, it leads you in a humble dance into the rest of your life as you enjoy the love of a God who makes his power perfect in your weakness. It's a crutch that keeps you leaning into the arms of the Father. It's the wave that casts you back onto the Almighty. If you've been assured of God's love, his blessing, his acceptance, when the truths of Scripture move you as you encounter the love of God in Christ Jesus through his Spirit, who is ever laboring to make Jesus big and beautiful to you, then you can limp, and it's okay. You can be dependent, and it's okay. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to bring attention to yourself. You also don't have to avoid attention. You can live in a rooted and grounded way, living as a dependent human being through whom God delights to show off his power, especially in your weakness. A joyful limp, a humble boldness, this joyful weakness will be your mark and your legacy. That's why the people of Israel wouldn't eat the sinew of a hip. They were remembering Jacob's legacy. His legacy was not seeing that the, the heavens open up and a stairway come down. His legacy was him walking with a limp. And what a blessing this will be to the world around you. Little talked about fact. Jacob, at the end of his life, he uh, is amazing. His son Joseph is in Egypt, and you know the story. He's been brought there in part, Jacob's been brought there in part because of the disastrous legacy of his being a father. And he's brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the ancient world, someone who Jacob would have undoubtedly, in his old ways, been trying to impress maybe trying to manipulate to get something from him. But Jacob's brought before Pharaoh, powerful Pharaoh. And do you know what Jacob does? Jacob blesses Pharaoh. This man who for his whole life, he's been seeking the blessing from everybody else. He's been turned into someone who can limp in front of the most powerful man in the world and bless him. And that is what encountering your God will do. It will leave you with a limp. A joyful limp that only a Christian can have, that brings blessing to the world around you as they see your God's power made perfect in your weakness. So application, give yourself to prayer as Jesus teaches you to pray. The aim and the end of prayer is to respond to the God who has first spoken to you in his grace and in his word. And his speaking and his initiating with you is the speaking of a great and powerful blessing. You are my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. And as you listen to his word and you respond, and as you listen to his word and you respond, and as you listen to his word and you respond, and you let him have his way with you as he works this encounter out in you, he's making his love for you real and beautiful to your soul. And when that truth gives way to doxology, and what I mean by that is when his truth becomes something that's big and beautiful and no longer something that you know is true, but something that causes you to delight, then you will know you have encountered your God. So pray the Lord's Prayer with the hopeful expectation that one day in the world which is to come, you will fully encounter him. You will see his face and live. And to help us along the way, to encourage us, to strengthen our souls, to feed us, to lead us to encounter our God, he has given us this table to which we now turn. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you for these stories of encounter where sinful men 
grapple with God and yet live, where people who don't deserve a blessing receive a blessing. God, would you now use this table to strengthen our faith so that we might trust that this is true, that we might push against our self-reliant tendencies and fall on our knees dependent on you. And God, even in confession that we don't even know how and what to pray for, we join together with one voice praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.